Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Chris Greenwood. I call this sermon a traveling sermon. Now, by that, I mean that we are traveling between chapters 1 and 3. There's a lot of well-known stuff in 1. There's a lot of well-known stuff in 3. A lot of people don't know a lot about chapter 2. And that's because it just kind of travels. It gets you from one place to the next. I think there's a lot in there for us today. And so, as we think about a traveling sermon, I want you to put yourself back some 2,000 years ago to sitting in the Church of Rome, hearing Paul's letter read for the very first time. Because you probably didn't read it yourself. There was no mass production. You didn't get it by email or text saying, here's Paul's latest words for you. You're sitting in church and you're having it read to you. All you have heard is chapter 1. You have no idea what chapter 3 has, or 5, or 7, or 9, or 14. You only know one. And we're going to get into chapter 2 now. And the reason I say that is because we have a tendency to want to know what's coming or predict what's coming. There are those in the room that I know that like to read the end of the book before you even read the beginning of it. There's those that uh, rush to the end of the movie before you have seen any of it. I'm, I don't know who those people might be, but some people have told me those types of things, Michelle Milana. And so, I, uh, just as a passing reference, but you don't know the ending, okay? You've got to put yourself in this, this early church. You don't know what's coming. You don't know what Paul's doing. And so, let Paul control the narrative. He's telling a story. He's going somewhere and he's building his case, okay? So don't rush off to, oh, well, he's gonna, what he means is, well, what he means is what's in chapter 2. That's what he means. So let's just stay there. Now, we'll get started. So let me tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a short intro that's going to tie into last Sunday to this Sunday, verses 6 through 11. Then starting in verse 12 through 29 is three sections. So we're going to look at all three of those sections. Once we're done with all of that, we'll go back and apply it to 2018, because we are not in the first century. We're in 2018. So we're going to see what it means for us. We're going to cover all of that. It is a lot. It's probably too much. I'm going to tell you, it's probably too much. But we're going to have fun anyway. So let me, are you guys okay if I do some teaching this morning? Because, um, you know, teaching is what I do by default. That's my primary gifting. And there's a possibility I'll get into some preaching. But uh, I'm going to start with teaching. And, and so let me pray for us as we dive into this word. Father, this message is so much bigger than me. There's so much in this that I have been convicted of over and over again. Each time I have gone through this sermon, I have had the spotlight shined on my life, and I, uh, I'm wrestling with all that you're showing me. And so this morning, I, I feel inadequate to share this with the body. But it really doesn't matter whether I feel adequate or inadequate because it's your word and it's your spirit and it's your desire that your people hear your word. And so this morning, would you strip me away that I might become less and you might become more and that we might all hear from you and your word in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. In order for us to set the stage, I'm going to pick up in verse 5, which was the end of last week, and we'll ride, I'll read right on through verse 11. So starting in Romans chapter 2, 
verse 5. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. He will render to each one according to his works. What in the world is that about? This is a Christian church, right? So we're not supposed to be the whole works-based thing. That's, that's other world religions. That's some of the Christian cults out there. But that's not, that's not our faith. Ours is we've been saved by grace through faith, right? So, so what is this he's going to render each one according to his works all about? Well, actually what Paul is doing is he's referring back to Psalm 62, which I don't have time to get into at all. But the very end of Psalm 62 is that exact phrase that he will render unto each according to his works. And so he's hearkening back to that psalm. And the whole gist of the psalm is that the person who exalts the Lord, who chases the Lord, who pursues the Lord, the Lord will render unto him according to his works. And so this passage that I just read is not really about works. It's not really about the Jews being first, even though you heard that said twice. It's not about what you do, but rather about what you pursue. It's not about what you do, it's about what you pursue. Look at verses 7 and 8 again, and you'll see it right there. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, he will, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So it's not about what you're doing, but what you're pursuing. Because see, we know, hopefully we know, that in and of ourselves, we are not interested in pursuing the things of God at all. We're not. When we're left up to ourselves, we're very interested in being self-seeking. We want to do what we want to do, how we want to do it, when we want to do it, for why we want to do it. We're not interested in the things of God unless God has done something in us to enable us and empower us and call us to seek the things of the Lord. So there's a transformation that here has happened. But that's not even the real question that he's trying to get us to ask. The question is this. Since God is going to render to each of us according to our works, without any partiality, how do we know what is good and not evil? Because see, that's where he goes later in the passage, right? For everyone who does good, they get this. For everyone who does this, evil, they get this. So how do we know what the difference between good and evil is? How do we know what's righteous and not unrighteous? How do we know what's well-doing and not self-seeking? The answer is found in a word he's about to introduce, but he hasn't said it yet in the entire book of Romans. It's three letters long. It's very short. But once he unleashes this word, the book of Romans is full of it. Can anyone figure out what the one three-letter word is that he's going to talk about? Law. Law. The law. Exactly. The law is that thing that helps us to distinguish between good and evil, right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous, well-doing 
and self-seeking. And so now we're going to get into the first section, verses 12 through 16. This section is focused on the Gentiles. Now remember, in a Christian worldview and in a Jewish worldview, in a biblical worldview, there are two groups of people in the whole world. There's Jews and everybody else, right? So if you're not Jewish in the room today, welcome to being a Gentile. That's you. So this focus is specifically thinking about the Gentiles. Then we'll get into specifically thinking about the Jews And then we'll see how it winds up being all of us, really. Now let me read this passage for us, 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I told you, once he unleashed that word law, he was going to say it a lot, right? I mean, that's a lot of law in one passage. In the New Testament, there's four ways the word law is used. In increasing order, I'll tell you all four. The first is as a general principle. When, it's, when the word law is used, it's referring to a principle of sorts. The second one is used a specific law. It's referencing a specific Old Testament law. The third one, and there's a lot more of this, is referring to at least part of the entire Old Testament, if not the entire Old Testament, as, an, as a group. And then lastly, and most commonly, it's used to refer to the Mosaic law, which is the Ten Commandments and the surrounding laws around there, including the dietary laws, the temple laws, and the laws for living in society. Okay? So that is what most commentaries agree is the focus here with Paul. You have to use context to determine that because very rarely in the New Testament does it define what exactly is meant by the word law. It's just law. So you have to use context to interpret that. So again, most commentaries feel that this is that case. Now, this passage has been accused of being a Jesus loophole passage. And what I mean by that is verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. The false interpretation that comes from that is is answering the age-old question, what about the people who've never heard? What about the people who don't have a Bible? What about the people who've never heard of God? What about the people who've never been told of Jesus? And so they use this verse to say, well, if you've never been told, you become a law unto yourself, and and therefore you're judged just on what you do know. Okay? Well, as is most half-truths, it's actually not truth at all. And let me give you an example. I'll use a very common example that you guys will immediately be able to relate to. Curling. So in curling, and uh, just want to just, just if I can just have a moment of indulgence, I did predict that we were going to do great in the Olympics in curling, and we did get the gold medal. So I'm just saying that happened. So in curling, when you're, you know, hurling the rock down there, you can yell, hurry hard all you want to, but if it's not going the right way, then it's just not going the right way. So, you know, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Okay, different illustration. Speeding. We'll go with speeding. If I turn onto a road and I'm driving my car and I just go 
and then a cop pulls me over, I can look at that cop and say, officer, I did not know it's 35 miles an hour. I had not seen a speed limit sign. I'm sorry. And he said, you know what? You're going 82. It doesn't really matter whether you saw a sign or not. You're just breaking the law. Whether you saw it or not, you're still breaking the law, right? You can also turn onto the road, see the 35-mile-an-hour sign, and still go 82 miles an hour. And when he pulls you over, he's going to say, did you see the sign? Well, yeah, I saw the sign. Well, what are you doing going 82 miles an hour? Well, I just, you know, I had somewhere to go, right? How much worse is it for the guy who actually knew that it's 35 miles an hour versus the one who's not? It's worse, but it, it, at the same time, it doesn't matter. It's still the law. It still is in place. So this idea that, that you're excused just because you haven't heard falls apart immediately. And actually, if we look at the first verse, verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged without the law, it leads us to ask a very simple two questions. How many people who are without the law have sinned? Everybody. How many people who have the law have sinned? Everybody, right? So it's irrelevant, but we like to get caught up in that. Okay, well, here's another question, Chris. How do you know it's sin if you don't have the law? It's a good question. It's a very good question. Pastor Steve's already given you one example, or one way you know, and that's from Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Creation itself testifies to the majesty and presence of God. And so all of us are without excuse, be, excuse because creation itself proclaims that there is God. Secondly, though, Paul adds to that in the passage I just read, Romans 2, 14 and 15, where he says that there is a reality of God through common morality and the conscience placed within inside every human being on the face of the planet. So whether you have ever heard of God, read a Bible, had anybody tell you about Jesus or not, there is within every human being a sense of conscience of right and wrong. And sometimes it either, you know, gives you approval or it accuses you. Or to use the words that he, it, uh, it can accuse you or excuse you, okay, based on that. Now, our consciences are, are marred by sin, so they're not perfect, Okay, so we can have discrepancies, but there is a sense that God has placed within every human being the ability to discern some things. We can unanimously agree that murder is wrong. We can unanimously agree you shouldn't steal things from other people. Do people do it? Of course they do. Because again, you can resist your conscience, you can overwhelm your conscience, you can go against your conscience, but there is within humanity a sense of discerning between right and wrong in addition to creation itself testifying to it. So all of that is there to try and answer all of those questions that have been made about that passage. But that is not really what the gist of the whole passage is about. The real gist is verse 13. That's what Paul was really trying to stress. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So whether you are under the law or are without the law is irrelevant. Because it's about obedience, not possession. It's about doing, not hearing. It's about the light you do have, not the light you don't have. Now, Scripture interprets Scripture, and this goes way back. This is not something new here in the New Testament. This is from Leviticus 18, 
verses 1 through 5. Now, I've always said that if you can weave Leviticus into a sermon, you are really saying something. So I'm telling you, this is top-tier message right here. Already, we're way up there. So Leviticus 18, 1 through 5, but also James 1, 22 through 25. That's where you hear that phrase, be ye not hearers of the law, or law, but also doers. Don't be just be hearers, but doers, okay? He ends with verse 16, declaring a final judgment that is coming, which will mirror the current impartial judgment of God that he demonstrates towards both Jews and Gentiles. In the Old Testament, a great example of that is the book of Amos. In the book of Amos, the prophet condemns six wicked Gentile nations through that prophet for violence and wickedness. But he also condemns, condemns Judah, but for a very different reason. And this is why Judah is condemned. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods and the gods their ancestors followed. So clearly the basis of Judah's judgment is totally different from those of the Gentile nations. Judah is judged for disobeying the laws of God, while the Gentiles are judged for disobeying the laws of humanity and decency. Should the Gentiles have known better? Yes, according to Romans 1, 19 and 20, and 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, the Gentile nations are judged on the basis of the law in their heart and conscience, and Judah, i.e. the Jews, are based on the written, revealed law of God. Regardless of which way, the judgment is impartial. It's about obeying the light you have rather than whether you have or don't have the right kind of light, in your opinion. The second section, verses 17 through 24, we're going to shift now to an exclusively Jewish focus. And he's going to begin with what I call the marks of a Jew. So if you had been a Jew listening to this, this is when you give the amens to the guy reading. Yeah, yeah, come on, Paul. That's right. This is me. This is me. You're saying that this is all about me. Come on, heap on this glory that you're just telling me how wonderful I am as a Jew. And then Paul changes his tone a little bit. So 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You boast in the law. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What is it called when you say one thing and do, and, or when you tell someone they should do a certain thing, when you yourself do something very different? Hypocrisy. We all are very familiar with that word, aren't we? We're going to come back to that in that whole application series in just a second. But let me just say that the Jews here are very firmly and completely nailed by Paul for being hypocrites. There's a commentary here, and it says, People, true to their nature, 
inevitably hide their real self and don a a fake self that they would like others to see. This second self is concerned to appear right before peers. The drive normally expresses itself in a legalistic battle for supremacy. Personal authenticity comes only when people surrender the hypocritical persona they appear to be and allow the self they really are to emerge. Obviously, fallen humanity has little desire for this to happen, hence the hypocrisy that permeates human society. Believers, having acknowledged their sinfulness and accepted the gift of divine approval, are in a position to reveal themselves as they really are. This ought to make believers the most transparent and childlike people in the world. This ought to make believers the most transparent and childlike people in the world. But what does hypocrisy matter, really? I mean, the only person that ends up looking bad is me. You know, like if I tell somebody this, and then I do that, and they're like, hey, you know, you're like a hypocrite. You shouldn't do that. So what's, it just, it just affects me, right? No. What does the context say? It says the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, Paul builds this statement on two references, Isaiah 52.5 and Ezekiel 36. Most of the commentaries, probably some of your footnotes, your study Bible notes, will say this is the Isaiah 52 reference. But I think the Ezekiel 36, 22 through 25 one is actually better. Uh, I was delighted to see that John Calvin also thought that in my studies. Uh, So that just, I really thought that was kind of funny. But uh, let me read both of them to you so you can see. Isaiah 52, now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually, all the day, my name is despised. This is when the people are being led out in exile and captivity because the nations were mocking the Jewish people and thus mocking their God because he was supposed to be their defender. He was supposed to be the one who stood up for them. And here they were being led away into exile. And so his name was being despised among the nations. But now, Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your, na- for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate my holiness, the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That's a strong word from the Lord, to vindicate his own name. Similarly, the prophet Nathan told King David after David's sin that by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt in 2 Samuel 12, 14. And even Father Abraham, way back in the beginning of Genesis, experienced essentially the same thing when he told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister and Pharaoh took her into his harem. But after the discovery, Abraham and Sarah went away And Abraham had no more testimony for God before the Egyptians. 
see the effects of that. Hypocrisy diminishes the wonder and respect due to God's name. Section three. After dismantling the perceived chief marks of a Jew, Paul now moves on to the chief practice and ritual of Jewish identity. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This was foretold in Jeremiah 9, where he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised, but yet uncircumcised. Listen to these countries. Egypt, Judah. Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab. For all these nations are uncircumcised physically, and all the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart spiritually. It wasn't the act of circumcision that mattered. That's what the Jewish people missed. It was the obedience to the act that mattered. It was the pursuing of the act that mattered. It's not your church membership that matters. It's the pursuit of joining a church that matters. It's not the taking of communion itself that matters. It's the desire to want to participate in communion and the transformation of your heart that leads you to want to be in communion. It's not the act of baptism that we're going to see here on Palm Sunday, a bunch of baptisms that matters. It's the the move in the heart of the person who wants to be baptized, who wants to have, take part in that sacrament of the church. That's what really matters. F.F. Bruce said this in his commentary, to be a Jew will do one good in the sight of God only if he keeps the law. A Jew who breaks the law is no better than a Gentile. Conversely, a Gentile who keeps law's requirements is as good in the sight of God as any law-abiding Jew. Indeed, a Gentile who keeps the law of God will condemn a Jew who breaks it, no matter how how well-versed that Jew may be in the sacred scriptures no matter how canonically circumcised he is. You see, it's not a matter of natural descent or an external mark like circumcision. The word Jew means praise, and the true Jew is a man whose life is praiseworthy by God's standards, whose heart is pure in God's sight, whose circumcision is the inward circumcision of the heart. He is the true Jew, I say, the truly praiseworthy man, and his praise is not a matter of human applause, but of divine approval. All right. So what? (laughs) You've listened to me for quite a while already. So what? Oh, Chris, man, you're just telling me about blasphemy and circumcision, and I'm a lot more uncomfortable than when I came in here because of all that. Thank you for that, I suppose. You know, it's so easy for us to sit and slip into judgment and find ourselves guilty of just what Pastor Steve was preaching about last week when we hear passages like this. Those Jews, I can't believe they didn't get it. I mean, come on. How could they miss what was really so very obvious 
Well, do we really want to go down that road? I mean, I mean, I, I don't know that we really want to go down that road too far. Well, okay, we'll go down that road. We'll just go ahead and we'll go down there because y'all are, y'all are clearly wanting me to. <clears throat> All right, section one. The key point from section one. Everyone will face the great impartial judgment of God, both Jews and Gentiles. And that judgment will not be based on what we have heard or possess, but rather on what we are actively obeying and pursuing. R. Kent Hughes says it this way, We today recognize their spiritual blindness, but the blade cuts both ways, does it not? The sword that pierces the heart of the religious Jew also pierces ours. It is easy to imagine we are okay, because we know so much more about the Bible than the average person on the street, especially in this day of biblical illiteracy. For we can have the Bible in 25 versions if we want to, and some of us carry around Bibles that have as many as eight parallel translations. It's a great temptation for the pastor to imagine that as he struts to the pulpit carrying his Hebrew Bible in one hand and the Greek in the other, that he is okay, when in fact he may very well have a heart of stone. That's a tough word. Section two was about the name of God being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of you. We identified rightly that that passage points to hypocrisy among the Jewish people. But where does hypocrisy come from? Hypocrisy comes from two main places, as best I can tell. It comes from the rise of moralism and the false god that it is. We have created an entire movement within the church of trying to develop moral people as if morality was the goal. And moralism has become the idol that we worship. Their entire church is dedicated to helping people be better people. And you can't take flawed people and help them be better people because they're still flawed. As long as moralism is a false god that we worship, then what you create is a bunch of people who point out the right thing that we all ought to do and then constantly fall short of it. And thus, hypocrites. The second thing that we do is we only believe part of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and disciple the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Period. Hard stop. Or maybe not. And teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's the rest. And teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. We're not in the business of teaching the hard things of Jesus. We're not in the business of coming alongside every single person and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. And so therefore, we have people who claim the name of Christ and know very little about what he actually taught. And thus, hypocrisy. And you know, we kind of laugh it off, right? I mean, you guys have heard the whole thing about well, the church is so full of hypocrites. And so what do we say? Well, come on, come on, join us. We can always have room for one more. Right? As if, as if that just makes it okay. 
it's wrong. It's wrong that we are called a group of hypocrites. It's not okay. It's never going to be okay. Because so long as the church is identified with hypocrites, then we diminish the name of God. And this word says we blaspheme the name of God. Because of us. Because of you. Because of me. Because all of us have people in our lives that watch us constantly. At work, at home, in public. And they're looking for somebody that has truth and meaning, who's solid and sure, who has absolute assurance that there's a real God who has a real plan for a real people with a real purpose. And they're still looking. And they're looking and they're looking and they're looking. And when they see the inconsistency... They blow off the God you claim to know. That's hard. See the weight of this and how this has been resting on me? This is a hard, hard word. The late theologian apologist Francis Schaeffer, you may have heard of him, expressed this around 40 years ago. Don't miss that part. 40 years ago he said this about a worrisome connection between Paul's words to the Jews and the contemporary American church. Again, we must admit, this is surely how God looks at much of Christendom today. Claiming to be under the umbrella of Christendom, claiming to have some sort of special blessing because the bells ring in the, in the cathedrals and because the United States still has great numbers of people who go to church. And yet we commit blasphemy against God as we turn from the clear teaching of his word. It is a sober truth and we must face it. If we have the Bible, if we enjoy all the blessings it brings, and yet by our lives bring shame upon God's name, we are guilty of the greatest irreverence. When the man with the Bible treats it as an external thing only, it causes the man without the Bible to dishonor the God of the Bible. Surely then the man with the Bible is justifiably under God's wrath. Whew. Section 3. But a Jew... Literally, a man or woman of praise is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Not by the letter, but by the Spirit. Oftentimes, when you hear people speak about the Spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, it's done in an either-or sort of way, as if they're completely separate entities. But to understand it that way is to miss what Jesus illustrates in passages like the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 5, where Jesus repeatedly says, you have heard it, say, you've heard it said this way, but I say unto you this way. And then he explains the spirit of the law. Well, how does this reconcile with 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6, where Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not by the letter, but by the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That sounds like it's two different things. And without a doubt, the letter of the law, as it stands alone, brings death, because the law reveals sin. It acts as a mirror shining God's holiness into our faces. Take, for example, when you go to the beach. You're out, you're out at the beach, and the sun's overhead, and it's a bright, sunshiny day. 
You're trying to look out over the water of the ocean, but you keep having to squint because it's just so bright out there. So the light's too intense. Well, what do you do in that situation? Well, you put on your sunglasses or your hat or fancy transition lenses like I have. In the same way as putting on those sunglasses, as it helps you manage the glare, obeying the spirit of the law doesn't diminish the holiness of God, the radiance of who he is, and the truths of how we're to live in response to his presence. Rather, the spirit empowers you to rightly obey because you can now clearly see the purpose and intention of the law. You are now empowered and equipped to stand in the fullness of that radiance by the Spirit. You have been made sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. The letter of the law doesn't go away. It becomes clear through the Spirit of the law. Our final passage from Ezekiel 33. Listen to how contemporary this sounds. Son of man, your people talk about you in their houses and whisper about you at the doors. They say to each other, come on, let's go hear the prophet tell us what the Lord is saying. So my people come pretending to be sincere and they sit before you. They listen to your words, but they have no intention of doing what you say. Their mouths are full of lustful words and their hearts seek only after money. You are very entertaining to them, like someone who sings love songs with a beautiful voice or plays a fine music on an instrument. They hear what you say, but they don't act on it. So we have a choice today. I don't know that I've been overly entertaining, but we have a choice on how to respond to all of this today. And I've said an awful lot. I get it. I admit it. I know very, very well that this is a lot. But we have to decide what kind of people we're going to be in response to Romans 2. John 8, 24, Jesus says this, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now that's a stark Jesus, isn't it? I mean, goodness, that's not the little bunny foo-foo Jesus that runs through the field with his hair everywhere. I mean, that's the Jesus who's saying some serious stuff to us. Today, we've, I've talked about pursuing not hearing, obeying to bring honor to God's name, not hypocrisy to bring blasphemy to it, and finding life through the spirit of law, not death through the letter of the law. But it all begins with a transformation. See, none of this is possible on our own. It's only possible because of the cross of Christ. And so this is when we have to leave Romans 2 where it is, and we have to remember the beauty of why in the world Paul's even able to write this letter is because he used to be a man named Saul. And then he encountered a man who wrecked his life. And he took the very worst of who he was and he made him to be the very best of who he could be. And it wasn't because he bought into some kind of false god of morality, but because he was changed from the inside out. And when we become circumcised by the Spirit of God in the heart then we can begin to show consistency in our life. And as we show consistency in our life, we become the type of people who pursue the things of God instead of just hearing about them. So it all begins there. It begins with Jesus. It seems to always circle back around to him, doesn't it? What a wonderful name 
We sang about that this morning. And so the invitations for each and every person in the room today. The invitation is Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I, Jesus, will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's a salvation passage. A lot of times we don't use it that way, but the context is salvific. Um, it's secondarily something we can just put on a mug and a t-shirt if we want to make ourselves kind of feel better when we're having a down day because it still works there too. But this really, this burden that Jesus is talking about is the weight of trying to go through this life on your own, trying to get it right on your own, trying to do it all, trying to get your way to heaven on your own. It's a burden and he's saying, come unto me and I'll trade you. I'll trade you straight up, all of that, for my grace and my forgiveness and my cleansing. And so, Lord, today we just ask that you would come and move. God, I have said the words you've given me to say. Spirit of God, it's up to you to distill down what was just Chris and what was you into the hearts of your people. But God, I know this, I don't, it doesn't matter to you, it doesn't matter to me one lick whether somebody has been going to church for 60 years or whether this is just the first time they're in church. It doesn't matter if they're an officer in a church, it doesn't matter if they are not even a member of the church. Your grace is still here for them. And so this morning, this is an unapologetic appeal for people to surrender to you, to come to faith. Because we don't know what tomorrow holds, and goodness knows today has enough trouble of its own. All we have to do is turn on the TV, look on Facebook, and today has plenty. But tomorrow's not guaranteed, and that's why you say today is the day of salvation. So, Lord, let none tarry today. If they feel the beating of their heart, if they feel that in their inner heart, that they know that they don't really know you. Oh God, would they know you today? Would they lay down their burdens and come to the one who's willing to meet them and to walk with them? And may we be a church who does indeed take the Great Commission seriously to not just go into all the world, not just proclaim the good news and baptize people, but would we also teach them to obey all that you have said? Because to me, doing that is the most loving thing we could do for somebody. And we're called to love you with all that we are and love our neighbor as ourself. Give us that kind of compassion for other people and grow our passion for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And this was another word that was presented kind of as a going out this morning from one of our church members during worship today. And then I'll, re I'll say this and then give you the benediction. They said that they felt like the Lord was telling them that the Lord is saying to us, I have given you the gift of myself. I have poured into you. Soak up every bit of me. And when you leave, go forth this week 
and share this soaking that you've received with a dry and thirsty world. If you guys could stand and receive the benediction, the elders will be available up front to pray for you and with you. If you do indeed need to know the Lord, or if there's anything else we can pray about, please come to us and let us have the honor and privilege of praying for you. Receive now the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.